This is Glasgow Crime Stories. We dive into crime of the city's past in short episodes you can listen to anytime, anywhere. In today's episode of the Glasgow Crime Stories, we look back to 1920 and the story of war veteran Henry Sr., who was murdered in a honeypot robbery gone wrong. Former soldier and First World War veteran Henry Sr. was looking forward to a night in the town. He was 35 years of age, single, recently discharged from the army and had money in his pocket. Around 7pm on February the 3rd, 1920, he left his home in Charles Street, Govan Hill on the south side of Glasgow with the intention of spending that Tuesday evening in the city centre. He lived with his widowed mother, who fretted over the fact that he seemed to have a lot of money on him. She had watched her son put £10 into his coat pocket, the equivalent of £500 today, which she feared would make him vulnerable to robbers and pickpockets. At the end of the day, Henry, who worked as a stonecutter, took £2 with him, more than enough for what he was looking for. Henry said goodbye to his mother and brother and headed out the door dressed in his smart tweed overcoat. He got a tram into the city centre and hit a few bars. Later that evening, as he walked down Hope Street towards Argyle Street, Henry was approached by Helen White, a 20-year-old prostitute. They chatted for a few minutes and then decided to go to Queen's Park, which was a popular spot for late-night gatherings between members of the opposite sex. In 1920, most single men lived with their parents and bachelor flats were unheard of. Secret liaisons were usually in the open air. Two young men, James Rollins and Albert Fraser, watched carefully in Hope Street as Henry was being picked up. They were both pimps who had previously arranged with White to lure them a client who they would then mug. Henry and White boarded a tram in Glassford Street for Queen's Park. Rollins and Fraser, who had been following, boarded the same tram, keeping a close eye on the couple. Suspecting nothing, Henry took White into the park and lay down in the grass. While sitting on the grass, Henry produced a small pocketbook and took out a ten-shilling note, around £25, which he handed to White, the agreed fee for their sexual liaison. But before anything could take place, Fraser and Rollins confronted Senior, who objected loudly at the unwelcome intrusion. They had been there for no more than a minute when Rollins and Fraser intruded. Fraser pointed a revolver at a shocked Henry, while Rollins then roughly told White to disappear. Henry was determined to stand his ground and not give up without a fight. But he had little chance against two desperate and powerfully built men who were determined to rob him. Rollins flung his arm around Henry's neck, at the same time placing a leg against his spine and forcing him backwards. Fraser then battered him about the face and head with the butt of the revolver. Henry fell to the ground, unconscious. White, who witnessed the entire attack from a distance, screamed at the two men to go easy on their victim. But Rollins and Fraser ignored her pleas, and she fled in terror, realising that the situation had got seriously out of hand. Henry was dead, and the murderers took all that he had left of his two pounds, which was six shillings, around fifteen pounds today. They also took his overcoat and removed his boots. After sharing the money, 
They dragged Henry's body away from the open ground and dumped it under some bushes. Rollins and Fraser then left the park, Rollins carrying the overcoat and Fraser with a boot sticking out from each of his coat pockets. In Langside Road, they boarded a tram back into the city centre. The day after the murder, two nine-year-old schoolboys discovered the victim's battered body in the bushes and informed the police. They were pupils at a nearby school and had made their way to Queen's Park to play a game of football. One of the boys found Henry after they had kicked the ball into the bushes. Running as fast as they could, the two boys returned to their school with news of the gruesome find. Soon, the park was swarming with police. Detective Chief Inspector Andrew Keith and Detective Inspector Lewis Noble were put in charge of the murder investigation. This would be no easy task. For a start, they didn't have a clue who the man was, as no one matching his description had been reported missing. There were no personal papers or identification on the body, while the face of the victim was so badly beaten that it was unrecognisable. Both trouser pockets had been torn away with a knife, suggesting the killers had been looking for money. With the victim's shoes and coat missing, robbery was clearly the main motive. Henry's body was taken to a mortuary attached to the nearby Queen's Park police station, and a search of the surrounding parkland began. All the police could do was release a description to the local newspapers. Henry's frantic mother and brother read the appeal and feared the worst after he failed to return home. She went to report him missing, and arrangements were made for a family member to identify the body. Due to the severity of Henry's injuries, it was agreed that his brother would do that grim task to spare his mother the trauma. Even then, identification could only be made on the clothing on Henry's body due to his facial injuries. Mrs. Senior said her son had told her he was meeting a girlfriend that night. He originally went to take the £10 from a box on the mantelpiece, but his mother warned him about carrying large amounts of cash, so he replaced most of it, leaving the house with a few pounds. Mrs. Senior was able to give a detailed description of what her son had been wearing that night. As a result, the police were able to publicise that a pair of brown boots, an overcoat, a pigskin pocketbook, some money, and army discharge papers were all missing. By this time, the murderers, as well as accomplices Helen Smith and Rollins' girlfriend Elizabeth Stewart, had pawned the boots and the overcoat. For the boots, they got 17 shillings and six pence, which would be worth around £40 today, and for the overcoat, 8 shillings and six pence, around £20 today. The two senior detectives circulated the description of Henry's coat and shoes to the wider public, and there was an immediate response. A tram conductor came forward, claiming that two men had boarded his tram car around 9.45pm on the night of the murder, only yards from the scene of the crime. He remembered that one of them had a pair of boots sticking out from the pockets of his overcoat, while the other man's hands were stained with blood. The conductor was able to describe both men, and say that they had left the tram in Gordon Street. The police were quick to match the tram conductor's descriptions, with two men suspected of committing a string of recent violent assaults in Queen's Park. Other passengers also remembered both men, and gave the police detailed descriptions of their appearance. 
Detectives began questioning every man known to associate with prostitutes and every prostitute who might know the identity of the murderers. It was from this operation that police got some vital information from an informant. He told the detectives that two men named Rollins and Fraser were living off the immortal earnings of prostitutes, pimping, in other words. He also gave the officers an accurate description of both. But where were they? The same informant told the detectives that he had once heard Fraser say that if he ever had to lie low from the police, it would be in a cave on the Northern Ireland coast near Belfast. On February the 7th, four days after the murder, Detective Chief Inspector Keith and Detective Inspector Noble set sail for Belfast. They had been given further information that both men had been spotted at Glasgow Central Station getting a boat train to Ireland. That evening, the two detectives were walking along the town's Albert Bridge Road when they spotted the two suspects. The whole area had been placed under surveillance by the Scottish and Irish police. The two denied knowing anything about the murder, but were taken to the local police station for questioning. Once there, their clothing was examined for bloodstains. Detective Keith noticed that Rollins' jacket appeared to have been washed. When he slit open the seams of the sleeve, he found signs of blood. He also found a piece of paper with an address in Lord Street, Belfast. Both men were then detained. The detectives went to Lord Street, which was occupied by a family also called Rollins. While there, there was a knock on the door, and when he opened it, Detective Chief Inspector Keith found the two women accomplices, Helen White and Elizabeth Stewart. On learning Henry had been murdered, both women were upset and told the detectives the whole story. They admitted they had been hiding out in a cave outside Belfast. Rollins and Fraser were taken back to Glasgow and charged with murder. The four arrived at 5.30am on the Sunday morning boat train from Belfast, accompanied by Keith and Noble. Despite the early hour of their arrival, crowds had already begun to assemble at Central Station, ready to hoot and boo the Belfast Four as they entered the waiting Black Mariah van. The two women were charged with being accomplices in the murder. However, the charges were later dropped and both became the main witnesses for the prosecution. Smith had also produced the pawn tickets for the coat and boots stolen from the victim, which they had found in a pawn shop in Mary Hill. The trial at the High Court in Glasgow began on May 3, 1920. Fraser and Rollins faced a murder charge and three assault and robbery charges. There were queues each day for seats in the public gallery, with many left locked outside. The jury was told that Albert James Fraser was a 24-year-old deserter from the Australian Army, and James Rollins, a 22-year-old Irishman from County Tyrone, also a deserter from the Army, but from the Irish Guards. In court, they sat together in the dock, appearing to take great delight in the proceedings. They laughed and joked with each other, apparently enjoying being the centre of attention. The jury learned that Henry Sr. was a bachelor and a veteran of the Great War, serving from 1914 with the 11th Hussars until he was badly injured in April 1918. By the time he had recovered from his wounds, the war had ended. He went back to his old employment as a stonecutter. Helen White explained that she was an Aberdonian 
who had come to Glasgow three years beforehand. She had met and married a Canadian soldier who was on leave at the time. When he went back to his unit, she soon took up with Albert Fraser and stayed in lodgings with him in the Mary Hill area. The court heard how, on the night of Henry's murder, both she and Fraser went into the city centre where they met up with James Rawlins. She was told by both Fraser and Rawlins to get a man and they would follow up. Disappointed with only a meagre haul of six shillings, fifteen pounds, Fraser removed Senior's boots, hoping to find more money inside. They were empty, so Fraser decided to take the boots themselves. Rollins stole Senior's tweed overcoat for himself. They would later meet up again with Helen, who was ordered to wash Senior's blood-soaked overcoat. After the attackers described the attack on Henry, White collapsed in the witness box and had to be carried from court. The grand total of money from the murder of an innocent man was a miserable forty-one shillings, or a hundred pounds in today's money. Later that day, the three met with Elizabeth Stewart, Rollins' girlfriend, after which the two women went to the cinema on Argyle Street. However, their film was interrupted by the two men frantically trying to get the girlfriend's attention by waving a newspaper. The newspaper contained the news that Henry was dead, and the four decided to immediately flee to Ireland, where they were later arrested by police. The trial lasted two days and ended with both men being found guilty and sentenced to death. Helen White's evidence was the most important. She told how she, Elizabeth, and the two suspects had carried out a string of honey-trap robberies with the women acting as bait. They were convincing witnesses. It took the jury a mere twenty minutes to find Rollins and Fraser guilty with a unanimous verdict. The judge, Lord Justice Sands, informed Fraser and Rollins that they had been convicted of an atrocious murder. He then donned his black cap and sentenced the pair to death. On hearing this, the two men were reported to have turned to each other, smiled and shook hands. Some reports suggested that the prisoners even fooled around. Fraser was spotted wiping away pretend tears from his cheeks in an exaggerated manner, while Rollins drew a finger across his throat as if slashing it for the benefit of the spectators in the public gallery. An appeal was launched for the death sentence to be commuted to life imprisonment. The two men's lawyers argued that the two men had entered Queen's Park with no intention of committing a murder, only assault and robbery but the appeal was denied. On Wednesday, May the 26th, 1920, Albert Fraser and James Rollins were awakened at 6am sharp, served a full breakfast, and for the first time since their trial, were allowed to sit in a cell together. A short religious ceremony was conducted by the prison chaplain, and just before 8am, the famed executioner John Ellis entered the cell to prepare them for their own hangings. Throughout, both men were compliant and apparently in good spirits. Fraser and Rollins then were walked the short distance from the cell, across the landing to the scaffold. After confirming their identity, they both stepped on the trap door without complaint. Ellis placed a white cap over each man's head and a noose around each of their necks as his assistant went to pull the lever to release the trap door. 
Fraser was heard to say, Cheer up, Jimmy, to his companion. The lever was pulled, and the two men died instantly. On the morning of the execution, a large crowd gathered outside Duke Street Prison in Glasgow's East End, where the hangings were due to take place. A strong police contingent was on duty from 7am in case of trouble. The story of how a war hero had been lured to his death had shocked the city. But there was no demonstration, and when, shortly after 8am, a notice appeared on the door of the prison that the executions had been carried out, the crowd quietly dispersed. It was the last double execution to take place in the Duke Street Jail, and one of the last in Scotland. Meantime, all over Glasgow, men and women were avoiding public parks, particularly at night. This podcast was brought to you by the Glasgow Times. With a digital subscription, you can access our exclusive, insightful and trustworthy local news from just £2 for two months. We are also currently offering 20% off our annual rate with the code GLASGOPOD22. This offers for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code given in this podcast. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rates unless cancelled.